0: Chapter Fifteen of The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. Chapter Fifteen Friends in Trouble. Although for a time the Northmen abstained from grand assaults, continued skirmishes took place sometimes parties landed beneath the walls and strove to carry off the cattle which the besieged turned out to gather a little fresh food there sometimes the citizens led by eudis or eblee would take a boat and cross and endeavour to cut off small parties of the enemy they had now sufficient boats at their disposal for expeditions of this kind for in their last defeat the danes had in their haste left several boats behind them of one of the largest of these esmond took possession and going out in her at night several times succeeded in capturing Danish vessels, sometimes while they were rowing along the river unsuspicious that any foes were near, sometimes by boarding them as they lay alongside the bank. As the vessels so captured were too large to be dragged ashore, and could have been easily recaptured by the Danes, they were, after being emptied of their contents, always burned. The plague continued its ravages, and the city became straitened for provisions. Count Eudis therefore determined to go to King Charles to urge him to hurry to the succour of the town. Almost all the chiefs of the defence had fallen victims to the pest, or had been killed in battle with the Danes, and the Count at his departure committed the defence of the city to the Abbe Eble and to Edmund. He then crossed the stream at night and made his way successfully through the Danes. The Abbe and Edmund vied with each other in keeping up the spirits of the garrison with successful little forays with the Danes frequently crossing the river to the one bank or the other, sometimes with parties of only five or six men, and falling upon similar bodies of the enemy. Several times they pounced upon small herds of the enemy's cattle, and driving them into the river directed them in their boats across the stream. In the commencement of July, Eudes appeared on the slopes of Montmartre with three battalions of soldiers. The enemy, who were for the most part on the other side of the Seine, crossed the river. A desperate battle ensued, a portion of the garrison crossed in boats to the assistance of their friends, Edmund leading over his band of Saxons. With these he fell upon the rear of the Danes engaged in fighting with the force under the count, and the northmen attacked on both sides gave way and took to flight. They were hotly pursued by the Franks. The reinforcements entered Paris triumphantly by the bridge, which had long since been repaired. But the siege was not yet over. When the news of the victory of Eudes spread, the Danes again drew together from all parts, and, crossing the river, attacked the city on every side. The onslaught was more furious than any which had preceded it. The Danes had provided themselves with large numbers of mangonels and catapults. Every man capable of bearing arms was upon the walls, but so furious was the attack, so vast the number of assailants, so prodigious were the clouds of missiles which they rained upon the walls, that the besieged almost lost heart. The relics of Saint Genevieve were taken round the walls. In several places the Danes had formed breaches in the walls, and although the besieged still struggled, hope had well-nigh left them, and abject terror reigned in the city. Women ran about the streets screaming and crying that the end was at hand. The church bells tolled dismally, and the shouts of the exultant Danes rose higher and higher. Again a general cry rose to Saint Germain, to come to the aid of the town. Just at this moment Edmund and Egbert, who had till now held the Saxons in reserve. Feeling that a desperate effort must be made, formed up their band, and advancing to the principal breach, passed through the ranks of the disheartened Franks, and with leveled pikes charged headlong down into the crowd of Danes. The latter, already exhausted by their efforts, were at once borne back before the serried pikes of their fresh assailants. In vain their chiefs at that point tried to rally them. Nothing could withstand the impetus of the Saxon attack astonished at seeing the tide of battle swept away from the breach the french believed that saint germain had wrought a miracle in their favour and taking heart poured out into the rear of the saxons the news of the miracle spread rapidly through the breaches and from every gate they poured out suddenly upon the danes who struck with consternation at this sudden onslaught by a foe whom they had already regarded as beaten hesitated and soon took to flight vast numbers were cut down before they could reach their vessels A great portion fled toward the bridge, and endeavored to cross there, but their numbers impeded them, and the Saxons and Franks falling upon their rear effected a terrible slaughter. Two days after the battle a force of six hundred Franks arrived from the Emperor Charles. The Danes sought to oppose their entrance to the city, but were defeated with a loss of three thousand men. The siege was now virtually over, and in a short time the Emperor himself with a great army arrived. It was now November, and after some negotiations the Danes agreed upon the receipt of seven hundred pounds of silver to retire to Burgundy, and to leave the country at the beginning of March. Having wasted Burgundy, however, they again returned to Paris. Consternation seized at the capital when the fleet of the Northmen was seen approaching. A treaty, however, was made, for the wind had fallen just when the Danish fleet, which had but lately arrived and was descending the river, was abreast of Paris. As soon as the wind became favourable, the northmen broke the truce, slew a number of Franks who had mingled among them, and passed up the Marne. In the meantime Emperor Charles had died, and Count Eudes had been chosen his successor. When the Danes again advanced against Paris, he speedily sent reinforcements. The town had already repulsed an attack. Eudes himself, on St. John's Day, was advancing with a thousand men-at-arms, when he was attacked by ten thousand mounted Danes and nine thousand footmen. The combat was desperate, but the Franks were victorious. Eudes, however, had other difficulties. Burgundy and Aquitaine revolted, and in order to secure peace to the kingdom he made a treaty with the Danes, giving over to them the province of Normandy. Edmund and Egbert had no part in the second siege of Paris. As soon as the place was relieved by the Emperor Charles they prepared to depart. Taking boats they ascended the river, and to their joy found the dragon safe in the hiding-place where she had been lying for nearly a year. She was brought out into the stream and floated down to Paris, where by the order of Count Eudes she was thoroughly repaired and redecorated. The Franks, convinced that next only to the assistance of Saint-Germain they owed the safety of their city to the valour of the Saxons, loaded them with presents, and these with the gifts which they had previously received after the destruction of the Three Towers, and the sums for which the booty captured from the Danes had been sold, made up a great treasure. Upon the day before they had arranged to sail a Danish boat was seen rowing down the stream. It approached the dragon, and the helmsman asked, "'Is this the ship the Dragon, and has it for a Captain Edmund the Saxon?' "'I am Edmund,' he replied, "'and this is the Dragon. What would you with me?' "'I am sent by the Hjarl Siegbert, who lies wounded near, to beg that you will come to him immediately, as he is in sore strait and needs your assistance. "'I will come at once,' Edmund said. "'Put one of your men on board to show me where he is.' for I shall be there before you.' Edmund's horn sounded the signal, and messengers were sent to the town to order the crew at once to repair on board the dragon. Edmund landed and took leave of the Frankish leaders. The provisions and stores were hastily carried on board, and then, amidst the enthusiastic cheers of the inhabitants who thronged the walls and the shore, the oars were got out, and the dragon proceeded, at the top of her speed, up the river. On the way Edmund questioned the Dane, and found that Sigbert had been wounded in the last assault upon Paris. He had not been present at the first part of the siege, having but recently arrived from Norway. His daughter Frida had accompanied him. Yes, she was still unmarried, although many valiant northmen had sought her hand, chief among them the brave leader fan of the left hand. But there had been a fray on the previous night in Siegbert's camp, and it was said, but for that he could not vouch, that Frida had been carried off. The news filled Edmund with anxiety. Ever since the day he left her on her father's galley his thoughts had turned often to the Danish maiden, and the resolution to carry out his promise, and some day seek her again had never for a moment wavered. He would seen many fair young Saxons, and could have chosen a bride where he would among these, for few Saxon girls would have turned a deaf ear to the wooing of one who was at once of high rank, a prime favourite of the king, and regarded by his countrymen as one of the bravest of the Saxon champions, but the dark-haired Freida who united the fearlessness and independence of a woman with the frankness and gaiety of a child, had won his heart. It was true she was a Dane and a pagan, but her father was his friend, and would, he felt sure, offer no objections on the ground of the enmity of the races. Since Guthorn and his people had embraced Christianity, the enmity between the races, in England at least, was rapidly declining. As to her religion, Edmund doubted not that she would, under his guidance and teaching, soon cast away the blood-stained gods of the Northmen and accept Christianity. In the five years of strife and warfare which had elapsed since he saw her, Edmund had often pictured their next meeting. He had not doubted that she would remain true to him. Few as were the words which had been spoken, he knew that when she said, I will wait for you even till I die, she had meant it, and that she was not one to change. He had even been proposing on his return to England to ask King Alfred, to arrange through Guthorn for a safe pass for him to go to Norway. To hear then that she had been carried off from her father's side was a terrible blow, and in his anxiety to arrive at Siegbert's tent Edmund urged the rowers to their fullest exertions. It was three hours after leaving Paris when the Dane pointed to a village at a short distance from the river, and told him that Siegbert was lying there. The dragon was steered to shore, and Edmund, leaping out, followed the Dane with rapid footsteps to the village. The wounded Jarl was lying upon a heap of straw. "'Is it really you, Edmund?' he exclaimed as the young Saxon entered. "'Glad am I indeed that my messenger did not arrive too late. I heard of you when we first landed, how the Danes, when they sailed up the Seine, had seen a Saxon galley of strange shape which had rowed rapidly up the river, how the galley herself had never again been seen, but how a young Saxon with his band had performed wonders in the defence of Paris, and had burned well nigh half the Danish fleet. They said that the leader was named Edmund, for they had heard the name shouted in battle, and especially when he with one other alone escaped from the burning tower and swam the river. So I was sure that it was you. Then a week back my men told me of a strange ship which had passed down the river to Paris, and I doubted not that it was your dragon, which had been hidden somewhere during the siege. I thought then of sending to tell you that I was lying here wounded, but freda who had always been talking, if you suddenly turned coy and said that you might have forgotten us. And if you wanted us, you could come to us in Norway.' "'But where is Frida?' Edmund, who had been listening impatiently, exclaimed. "'One of your men told me that she had been carried off. Is it true?' "'Alas, it is true,' Siegbert replied. "'And that is why I sent for you. I have never been good friends with Bjorn since the wounding of his son. But after a time the matter blew over. Sven, who, though but with one arm and that the left, has grown into a valiant warrior, is now, beyond being dead, one of our boldest Vikings, a year since he became a declared suitor for Frieda's hand. In this, indeed, he is not alone, seeing that she has grown up one of our fairest maidens, and many other valorous deeds that have been done to win a smile from her, but she has refused all suitors, Svein with the others. He took his refusal in bad part, and even ventured to vow she should be his whether she willed it or not, Of course I took the matter up and forbade all further intimacy, and we had not met again till the other day before Paris. We had high words there, but I thought no more of it. A few days afterwards I was struck by a crossbow bolt in the leg. It smashed my knee, and I shall never be able to use my leg again. I will not died of fever and vexation, but Frida nursed me through it. She had me carried on a litter here to be away from the noise and revelry of the camp. Last night there was a sudden outcry. Some of my men who sprang to arms were smitten down, and the assailants burst in here and tore Frida, shrieking away. Their leader was Svein of the left hand. As I lay tossing here, mad with the misfortune which ties me to my couch, I thought of you. I said, if any can follow and recapture Frida, it is Edmund. The Dane's had, for the most part, moved away, and there were few who would care to risk a quarrel with Spain in a matter which concerned them not closely, but I felt that I could rely upon you and that you would spare no pains to rescue my child.' "'That will I not,' Edmunds explained. "'But tell me first, what you think are his plans? Which way has he gone, and what force has he with him?' "'The band he commands are six shiploads, each numbering fifty men. What his plans may be I know not, but many of the Danes I know proposed, when the war was finished here, to move east through Burgundy. Some intended to build boats on the banks of the Rhine and sail down on that river.' others intended to journey further and to descend by the elbe i know not which course sweyn may adopt the country between this and the rhine swarms with danes i do not suppose that sweyn will join any other party having frida with him he will prefer keeping apart but in any case it would not be safe for you to journey with your band who would assuredly become embroiled with the first party of danes they met and even if they be as brave as yourself they would be defeated by such superior numbers you do not think that Svein will venture to use violence to force Frida to become his wife? I think he will hardly venture upon that, Siegbert said, however violent and headstrong he may be. To carry off a maiden for a wife is accounted no very evil deed, for the maiden is generally not unwilling. But to force her by violence to become his wife would be a deed so contrary to our usage that it would bring upon him the anger of the whole nation. Knowing Svein's disposition, I believe that were there no other way he would not hesitate even at this but might take ship and carry her to some distant land but he would not do this until all other means fail he will strive to tire her out and so bring her in her despair to consent to wed him edmund was silent for three or four minutes then he said i must consult my kinsman egbert i will return and tell you what i propose doing on leaving the cottage edmund found egbert walking up and down outside awaiting the result of the interview He had been present when the dane had told of freda's abduction and knew how sore a blow it was to the young eldorman for edmund had made no secret to him of his intention some day to wed the danish jarl's daughter edmund in a few words related to him the substance of siegbert's narrative and ended by saying now egbert what is best to be done no use asking me edmund you know well enough that it is you that always decides and i agree i have a hand to strike but no head to plan Tell me only what you wish, and you may be sure I will do my best to execute it.' "'Well, of course we must follow,' Edmund said. "'Of that there is no question. The only doubt is as to the force we must take. What Sigbert said is true. The Danish bands are so numerous to the East that we should be sure to fall in with some of them, and fight as we might should be destroyed. And yet with a smaller number, how could we hope to rescue Frieda from Spann's hands?' Edmund walked up and down for some time. I think, he went on at last, the best plan will be to take a party of but four at most. I must choose those who will be willing to pass best as Danes. With so small a number I may traverse the country unobserved. I will take me two of Siegbert's men, who, when we get nigh to Sweyn's band, may join with him and tell me how things are going, and how Sweyn treats his captive. If I find he is pushing matters to an extreme, I must make some desperate effort to carry her off. But if, as is more probable, he trusts to time to break her resolution. I shall continue following at a short distance. Shall I go with you, Edmund? I, I think it will be better not, Egbert. Your beard would mark you as a Saxon at once. But that I can cut off, Egbert said. It would be a sacrifice, truly, but I would do it without hesitation. Thanks, dear kinsman, but I think it would be of more purpose for you to remain in command of the dragon. She may meet many foes, and it were best that you were there to fight and direct her. I pray you at once to descend the Seine and sail round the north coast of France. Place the dragon at the mouth of the Rhine. Do not interfere with any Danish ships that you may see pass out, but keep at a distance. Should Svein descend the Rhine, I will, if possible, send a messenger down before him. So do you look out for small boats, and if you see one in which the rower hoists a white flag at the end of his oar, you will know he's my messenger. If I find Svein goes on toward the Elbe, I will also send you word, and you will then move the dragon to the mouth of that river. Lastly if you receive no message, but if you mark that in a Danish vessel, when passing you, a white cloth is waved from one of the windows of the cabins in the poop, that will be a signal to you that the vessel is sveins, and that Freda is a captive on board. In that case you will, of course, at once attack it. Let us ask Sigbert. He has sailed up both the Rhine and the Albe, and he can tell us of some quiet port near the mouth of each river where you may lay the dragon somewhat out of sight of passers-by, while you can yet note all ships that go down the river. My messengers will then know where to find you." Having settled this point, they returned to Sigbert, and Edmund told him what he thought of doing. "'I can advise no better,' Sigbert said. "'Assuredly, you cannot prevail by force. At present I have only ten of my followers with me. The rest, after I was wounded, and it was plain that a long time must elapse before I could again lead them in the field asked me to let them follow some other chief and as they could not be idle here i consented i have ten men with me but these would be but a small reinforcement as you say your saxons would be instantly known and the northmen have suffered so at their hands during the siege that the first party you met would set upon you i will take two only of your men edmund said choose me two who are not known by sight to Spain. i wish one to be a subtle fellow who will act as a spy for me the other I should choose of commanding stature in the air of a leader. He will go with my party, and should we come upon Danes, he will assume the place of leader, and can answer any questions. There is far too much difference between the Saxon and Danish tongue for me and my men to pass as Danes, if we have many words to say. I shall take four of my men, all full-grown, strong, and good fighters. They have but little hair upon their chins at present, and they can shave that off now jarl i want five danish dresses for your costume differs somewhat from ours have you horses if not i must send back to paris to buy some i have plenty to mount you and your party good edmund said i will go down to my ship and pick my men in half an hour the party were ready to start egbert had received from siegbert particulars of villages at the mouths of the rhine and the Elbe, and he promised edmund that a watch should be kept night and day at the mouth of the rhine until a messenger arrived. Edmund had already ascertained that Svein had left a fortnight before with his following, and had marched towards Champagne. There, probably, he had halted his main body, returning only with a party of horsemen to carry off Freida. "'I would I could go with you,' Siegbert groaned as Edmund said adieu to him. "'I would ride straight into his camp and challenge him to mortal combat, but as it is. I am helpless,' "'Never fear, good Siegbert,' Edmund said cheerfully. "'When your leg is cured, travel straight homeward, and there I trust before very long to place Frieda safe and unharmed in your arms. If I come not to you, you will know that I have perished.' A minute later, after a few parting words with Egbert, Edmund mounted his horse, and followed by his six companions, rode off at full speed. He knew that it would be useless making any inquiries about Svein and his party, but few of the inhabitants of the country were to be seen about for the Danes had burned every house within very many miles of Paris, and the peasants would assuredly not have paid any special attention to a party of Danes, for whenever they saw the dreaded marauders, even at a distance they forsook their homes and fled to the forests. The party therefore rode eastward until nightfall, and picketed their horses, and having lit a fire, made their supper from the store of provisions they had brought with them, and then lay down to sleep for the night. At daybreak they again started and continued their journey, until it was necessary to halt to give their horses a rest. They had passed several parties of Danes, for these, in great numbers after the Siege of Paris had been given up, were journeying toward Burgundy. There was but slight greeting as they passed, but on one occasion a horseman rode out from one of the bands, and entered into conversation with the two Danes who rode at the head of the party. They told them that they were followers of the Jarl Siegbert and were riding to join the rest of his band, who were with the company of Jarl Eric, as Siegbert would be long before he would be able to move, and had therefore kept only a few of his followers with him. Eric is a long way ahead, the Dane said. He must be full as far as Nancy by this time. Those who left first, he grumbled, will have the pick of the country. We were fools to linger so long before Paris. Then, turning his horse, he rode back to his comrades, and the party continued on their way. They avoided all towns and large Danish encampments on the way, but made inquiries from all small parties they met after the party of Svein. They learned without difficulty the place where he had been encamped a few days before, but on their arriving in the neighborhood they found that the place was deserted, nor could any tell them the direction in which the Northmen had traveled. End of chapter fifteen. Recording by Mike Harris.